are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. Welcome back to True Crime Twins, where we use our academic and occupational backgrounds in criminology and medicine to tell you crime stories. I'm Chloe. And I'm Alina. Thank you for joining us for another week of crime stories. Today, we are moving in a bit of a different direction. We are telling you about a suspicious death in our own family. One that has not been sufficiently explained by the powers that be, meaning the medical examiner's office where this suspicious and untimely death occurred. We are going to change some basic details of the story to protect people's privacy and go from there. We just really thought that this was an important story to tell of injustice And it's something that's very personal to us. And we can tell this story in a way that no one else can. And unfortunately, because of a lot of factors that will come through as we discuss this, we're the only people that care to tell this story. Rick was in his 60s and lived in Newark, Delaware. He worked as a priest and was pretty well known in that particular community. He met Cato, an East African immigrant, at church and quickly took him under his wing. Rick and Cato had been together for a brief period of time, but Rick was enamored with Cato in a way that I had never seen with Rick. In our entire lives, we had never actually seen Rick in a dating relationship with anybody. He was, as Melina said, in his 60s. He had been married to a woman, actually, and divorced and had a couple of relationships since, but Never anything that we had observed in our 13 years of life at this point in 2008. But suddenly he is absolutely head over heels in love. This man, Cato, is 27 years old, which of course raised flags to everybody in our family. We were concerned about it. I mean, Melina and I were 13-year-old children. So knowing what we know about life and human nature and relationships with this life experience I've gained now as a 27-year-old, I would have been even more concerned. But we were all happy to see Rick happy. We loved Rick. We didn't want him to be lonely. But the expressions of love that he had were intense. You know, you'd ask him how he's doing. Oh, I'm happy. I'm in love. It just always came up. He was just entrenched. And looking back just now as an adult, I wonder if He was being love bombed, which is a very, unfortunately, a common phenomenon that happens in early dating relationships when people are in that honeymoon phase where there's no fighting. Everything is just perfect. When a partner in a dynamic is manipulative or has some self-serving goal in mind, they will appeal to their partner's sentimental nature, their desire to be loved, their loneliness perhaps. And they will just tell them everything that they want to hear, everything that just makes them feel so special, like that it's a meant to be dynamic, that they're the one. Feeling like you're in love is a very 
good feeling and it can make people act irrationally and some manipulative selfish people with an end goal in mind know how to appeal to those feelings to get the best of people and manipulate them looking at it now hindsight is 2020 and i'm an adult now it did seem that perhaps he was being love bombed and that his attachment to Cato was very intense for the short length of time that they had known each other. We actually liked Cato when we met him. He, I think, talked to me and Chloe the most out of the whole family because he could relate to us the most as 13-year-old girls. And we talked about America's Next Top Model together. When I was 13, I definitely was capable of being suspicious. I thought, oh, he's not using Rick for his money because Rick doesn't have a lot of money, right? He lives in like a one-bedroom apartment. I think he owned it and has a compact car, maybe. He didn't have a lot of assets, but to somebody like Cato, he had a lot more than he had. In just a matter of a few months, Rick changed his will so that Cato would get everything in the event of his death. Rick's family, us, our other family members, were unaware of this change until after Rick was found dead by Cato in bed in their home in June of 2008. Rick had brought Cato to Connecticut to our home to meet family members just about two or three months before he died. So this was all very new to us. And as silly, and I mean, we're still silly, but as very silly 13-year-olds, we were suspicious, like you said, Melina, but the way that we went about mitigating those suspicions were very silly. Like we had a checklist. We were like, he has to like our cat and our cat has to like him. Like, obviously, that would not be the criteria I would use again. And it just shows how young we were in our mindset that that's what made it so we were OK with him and approved of him, that he was able to talk about superficial subjects like America's Next Top Model with us and relate to us. What that really does show is that he was immature. I think he was going to the people in the room that he was most comfortable with, which were 13-year-old children, because if he were to be talking to the adults in the room, they could ask probing questions and he'd be forced to reveal personal information about himself. He came over with a, I don't know if it was a flash drive or a disc, showing off his modeling portfolio that Rick had footed the bill for. And so Rick was very proud of this portfolio, too. And it was really weird. Like, it was a weird vibe in the house. And he was very drawn into Cato's dream of being this model. And Cato had this kind of elevated sense of self, or I guess the better way to describe it would be that he misrepresented himself exaggerated his accomplishments like if you were to go on his linkedin page or any internet trace of him and now it's far in between but back in 2008 i remember looking into him online as a suspicious 13 year old he described himself as a ceo of a company and that just wasn't true and saw an opportunity for a perfect scam in rick a lonely love-starved person who is suddenly getting showered with attention by someone who's less than half of his age. It was an inappropriate relationship and clearly exploitative, especially with him putting so much time and effort into Cato's modeling dreams so early on in the relationship. That's like a, a married couple thing. And of course, 
changing the will. What an extreme thing to do so early on. When Rick died, all of his assets, which were, I think, once liquidated about $250,000, so a quarter million dollars, it's a good amount of money, but he wasn't enormously wealthy. He wasn't living without financial caution. I believe that amount was after the apartment was sold and certain things like that. But that's the amount that he got, and he ended up blowing through it in just a few months and then returned to Africa. We knew that Rick wasn't in good health. He looked very, very frail, and he always walked in a sort of careful gait. Like, if he went up the stairs, he would walk step by step, not like one, two, three up the stairs. Left foot, right foot on one step, like that, and just move very slowly. And he looked older. He looked more like in his 70s, in my opinion muscle wasting, not healthy, but we still didn't expect him to just die. It was shocking. What I'm trying to say is that sometimes people can be like, oh, well, they were sick anyway. It's not that shocking, but sure, he was sick, but to just drop dead like that was not anything that anybody expected, nor why would they have? It was a huge shock to everybody. I mean, the last time we saw him, he was walking with a cane. Like you said, Melina, he had muscle wasting, so he looked frail he looked weak and maybe a little bit gaunt so he didn't look healthy and lively but just remember he was in his 60s people do die of natural causes in their 60s and when we learned that he died the prevailing theory immediately was that it was some sort of heart attack he was found on his bed in the middle of the night according to Cato he had woken up to go to the bathroom and came back and found him dead so these were the kind of limited details that we were working with at the time. Once his autopsy was complete, Dr. Jenny Vershvovsky, who's the assistant medical examiner in the state of Delaware, performed his autopsy and ruled that he died of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Can you tell me a little bit about this ruling? And as a medical professional, after reading through this document, which is the autopsy of Rick that was basically just focused on his upper body. What do you think of this finding? What does it tell us? And do you agree with it based on the pathological findings of this report? I'm going to go through this sort of step-by-step. -step. Circumstances. Found unresponsive on his bed. Pathological findings. Atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Edema, lung, periorbital and conjunctival petechial hemorrhages. Small abrasions on the neck. No evidence of injury to the brain or skull. No evidence of injury to the deep structures of the neck. And wasting of lower extremities related to a chronic disease he had. The cause of death is atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease with his left anterior descending artery obstructed up to 75% of the lumen, which basically means that artery was blocked with fat up to 75%. And his right coronary artery was blocked up to 50 to 65%. So these are definitely not great indicators of health to have this much atherosclerosis, but I don't see why this would have necessarily killed him. It doesn't say that there's any, there's no stroke, there's no infarction. So it's just saying that some of his arteries are blocked, but people I think can live with those blockages. I've seen worse on alive people. The edema of the lung Usually you have pulmonary edema or swelling. It can mean a lot of different things. You can have swollen lungs if you have a lower respiratory infection. 
or it can be from drowning because you're swallowing water, breathing in water, or it can happen in a violent death, a sudden death. Periorbital and conjunctival petechial hemorrhages is a very, very interesting finding because for those of you who enjoy watching the forensic shows that we watch, you may have heard of petechial hemorrhages. They are little red spots that can show up in a lot of different places in your body, but if they are periorbital and conjunctive, the pink part of your eye, usually indicative of a loss of oxygen like strangulation or suffocation or hanging. Small abrasions, neck, that's interesting because of what I just said. So basically with these findings, they start from what they think is most significant to least significant. So those were the findings. They said the death is natural. His height was five seven and a half, and his weight 138 pounds, which in my opinion, it's small. I feel like he probably could have done with 20 more pounds easy it says the body is that of a well-developed slim white male i've noticed that in these reports they will not put in slim for just anybody it's to accentuate their finding that they have a small frame and not a lot of fat his petechial hemorrhages was more prominent in the right eye but was present in both eyes no evidence of injury to the lips ears nose mouth or buccal mucosa meaning the inner cheeks the anterior neck is visibly and palpably intact and in the midline. There are two dark red-brown abrasions on the right side of the neck, measuring one and a half inch and one quarter of an inch, respectively. The chest cage is symmetrical and intact. Injuries. There's no evidence of significant external injuries other than those described above. That's an interesting way of putting it, in my opinion. I would think that the amount of hemorrhaging in his eyes as well as the condition of his lungs they might have been a little less liberal with that kind of language his lungs were 920 grams on the right and 760 grams on the left this is very large for lungs that means that they're swollen they have edema the lungs are dark red and congested when chloe gave this report to a colleague of hers for a second opinion he seemed to think that the bright red was indicative of a sudden death because the body is so traumatized that all of the blood leaves the periphery, your arms and legs, and shunts to the lungs and heart to sort of preserve your life. It shifts to the essential organs. So that could account for the presence of the swelling and blood. And it even says sectioning reveals dark red-pink parenchyma. That means a functional cell oozing a large amount of serosanguinous fluid from the cut surfaces. So that means bloody fluid was in his lungs. And it kind of sounds like what that colleague of yours described. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. For a little bit more context and how I got access to this report, why I accessed it at all, and this colleague that Melina's referring to who reviewed the report and gave me his opinion, this was back in 2016. I was a senior in college at George Washington University, undergraduate studying criminology and psychology. I 
was fortunate enough to go to a school that had an amazing criminal justice department. And in a criminology class one day, the guest speaker was Dr. David Fowler, who was the retired chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. He had a very thought-provoking, fascinating lecture to share with us. He has since testified in the murder trial against Derek Chauvin regarding the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. He's testified and has been an expert witness in other high-profile cases too. But when he had done this guest lecture, I had been basically besides schoolwork, I'd been looking into Rick's death with the rest of my spare time. I was 21, 22 at this point. You know, I had grown up. I had looked back on these circumstances and decided that I wanted to take a closer look. Everyone was suspicious when we found out about the timing of the will change. But the adults who were suspicious enough had gone through Rick's computer and found nothing significant. And I think they had read but maybe not retained a copy of the autopsy report. And due to the, I think, sometimes misleading language of Dr. Vershvovsky and the fact that she ruled something but couldn't really back it up medically in what she had written. Someone without medical training wouldn't have been able to notice that and they would have probably deferred to the authority of assistant medical examiner Dr. Vershvovsky. But now we're adults and my academic background is criminology, but Melina's is in medicine. And she now reads this report and thinks that it's strange. And so did Dr. David Fowler. When he looked at the report, he disagreed with Dr. Jenny Vershvovsky that the cause of death was heart disease. He thought that Rick's heart was damaged because of sudden death. Not that he died because of heart disease. He thought that the florid edema of Rick's lungs were relevant. He thought that it could have been reflective of perhaps some sort of drug overdose because the toxicology report listed that Rick had elevated levels of barbiturates, which is a seldom prescribed sedative drug that many of you might know was what had killed Marilyn Monroe. Doctors who would prescribe a barbiturate are far in between these days. It would probably, back in 2008, if anyone was prescribing it to Rick, it would have been a very old, an age doctor and a very old school mentality doctor. Or he could have obtained them illegally. He could have obtained them off the street. I don't think that's outside of the realm of possibility. People are complicated. He had a lot of excellent qualities, but I don't think he or anyone else is above the possibility of slipping into drug misuse and engaging in illegal behavior such as buying drugs off the street to maintain cravings, addiction, tolerance, what be it. I had in my little investigation in 2016 had found out that there was some indication that he had been occasionally misusing painkiller medications As we had said, Rick was sick and he did have pain, and I think he would occasionally take them recreationally as well to get that sort of emotional buzz or whatever happens when you take painkiller medication. I haven't done it, but it's an opiate. So people who abuse opiates like painkillers, 
they are doing it because it literally makes them feel good. It makes everything bad go away. It tricks your mind. It makes you happy. That's literally what it is. And it literally takes your pain away, whether it be physical or emotional pain. That's why it's so addictive and it's why so many people die from it. But weirdly, that did not show up in the toxicology. Barbiturates kind of sounds like something that somebody could drug somebody with. Rick had a best friend who at the time I really hadn't spoken to, but she was more than willing to answer all of my questions. And I had talked to her and recorded the conversation where she was just being totally honest with me about everything. And that's where I had come to find out that Rick had had used some prescription medications recreationally at times and learned some other things about him that I certainly did not know previously. That something that only a best friend who literally lived in the same building would know. But she said nothing about barbiturates and knew nothing about use of barbiturates. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility that this was not a dose administered by Rick himself. That coupled with the other suspicious circumstances, once I had thought more about it when I was in college and decided to look into it, everything that I had found just made me even more suspicious. So looking back initially, okay, the will was changed so soon before. That's weird. Let me get the autopsy. So I was able to do that with access to the next of kin. And then I did whatever I could to get that into the hands of somebody who could look at it independently. And and it ended up being someone who disagreed with it. He thought that the petechial hemorrhaging was suspicious, as Melina also believes, as she had discussed, and that it could be a result of a suffocation. There weren't any deep neck injuries to Rick, but a smothering couldn't be ruled out. And that was acknowledged by Dr. Fowler in my correspondence with him as well, that he believed that it was probably an accidental or intentional overdose, but he could not rule out a smothering based on the condition of his eyes and his lungs. That made me suspicious. So I talked to Rick's friend. She gave me contact information to another friend. She claims that this friend, who also works in church organizations, that he had arrived at the same time as police on the night of Rick's death and had said to the police, I need you to investigate this as a suspicious death. Something's not right here. So I call him in 2016, which is eight years after the fact. Imagine getting that call from me. And he told me that he couldn't remember why he said that that he doesn't know why he was suspicious, that he believes that he could have said that but didn't remember. And of course, getting a response like that really makes you wish that people, and that includes law enforcement and others, could have been more thorough in looking into the whole picture of this story because the more that I was learning, the more concerned I was getting. I even reached out to Cato on Facebook. And after this conversation, Cato unfriended me. And I'm sure anyone could understand why after <laughs> after I tell you what I did, I had all of these questions. And I just said, you know, why not ask him? Why not? Who else is going to do it? No one else cares. Based on how the police looked into this or failed to look into this, nobody cared. With an untimely and unsolved death, to do an autopsy of just the chest cavity, cranial cavity, and neck and ignoring the entire rest of the body to not treat it as a potential crime scene, to not bring people into questioning, 
it's a shoddy investigation. They saw an old gay man dating a young black gay man, an immigrant, and they decided that it wasn't worth their time. They didn't care. It was insignificant to them. And I think if they looked into this at all, if they did anything to probe, if they took pictures and I trust me, I tried. I tried to get everything they had. They didn't have anything. They had the dispatch records of when the police were dispatched. There was no investigation except for this upper body autopsy that was done, in my opinion, in a very confusing, illogical way based on the medical professionals that I've consulted with since. And I had also learned that in 2014, which was two years before I started looking into all of this, and six years after Rick's death, that the office of the medical examiner that was run by Dr. Richard Callery had this huge scandal and that Dr. Richard Callery had been arrested for falsifying reports for evidence tampering. He was also accused of having his own private consulting business and billing the state of Delaware for hours working for the medical examiner's office, that he was neglecting his duties, doing things in a half-assed, shoddy way. So that, of course, made me even more suspicious. Everything just kept adding up. I reached out to Cato with this culmination of concerns. I asked him questions like, were his eyes okay? Were Rick's eyes normal when you guys went to bed that night? Did he look normal? And he said, yes, there was nothing wrong with his eyes. I said, did he have any scratches? Did he have any marks on his neck? No, he did not. The medical examiner, Dr. Jenny Vershvovsky, literally giggled, laughed at me when I suggested that the petechial hemorrhaging could have been a result of foul play. She said, you know, people get that when they throw up. And I once in my life saw an extremely drunk person have like projectile vomiting. And the next morning they did have those bursted blood vessels around their eyes, but it was not as severe as what was described in Rick's autopsy report. And again, that's once in my life. I talked to people who dated Rick, who grew up with him, and that never happened to him after he had vomited. Not to mention, there's no evidence of vomiting in the place. And I asked Cato, and he said there was no vomiting. He didn't observe any vomiting. His story is that they went to bed, he woke up, went to the bathroom, and came back, and he was dead. He played dumb about a lot of things. He sort of tried to antagonize Rick a little bit in the conversation, but he denied knowing anything about the injuries. He said a few things about having details be fuzzy. He kept emphasizing how much he loved Rick. But when I talked to Rick's best friend who came to that scene before the police did, Cato actually called Rick's best friend before he called the police. When Rick's best friend came up to the unit because they lived in the same apartment building, Cato was on the phone with 911 dispatchers and he was complaining that he was struggling to get Rick's body from the bed onto the floor to perform CPR. She said that Cato was not wearing pajamas. He was wearing regular street clothes, not something that you would wear to go to bed. She said that Rick's body was situated directly in the center of the bed. And there really wasn't enough space for someone to sleep on either side of that person. And that he was in full rigor mortis, that his body was completely stiff and that his mouth was wide open. 
this is not someone who had died in the last couple of hours. What do you think the post-mortem interval is at that point, Melina? If he was that stiff, he had to have been dead for at least several hours. Hearing about this from someone that was there obviously gives doubt to the idea that that's what happened, that Cato was sleeping next to him and woke up just to go to the bathroom and found him like that. He was in the middle of the bed in that position and dead for hours. So why would Cato lie about what he was doing? The best friend said that the very next night, Cato took Rick's car to go clubbing and that this was something that was a pattern in the relationship where Cato would go out dancing, go clubbing, partying, whatever, drinking, probably using drugs, possibly engaging in sexual activity with people outside of the relationship. This was obviously not something that a frail 60-something-year-old would comfortably partake in. And it made him uncomfortable that Cato was going out and doing this. And this is an activity that he had done the very next night after he had found the person he claimed to be in love with dead. This concerned the best friend. People handle grief differently. Sometimes people are in denial. But with everything else, it made the best friend feel concerned. And it also made her wonder, was he out dancing that night? The night that Rick died, was he not home? And did he make up a story about what he was really doing? And again, why would you lie? When I talked to Dr. Vershvovsky, she also condescendingly told me that there needed to be motive and opportunity for foul play to be present. And I told her, I said, well, I don't need to explain why I'm suspicious. I'm just asking you questions on behalf of the next of kin in this case about the autopsy that you performed and wrote a report about establishing the cause and manner of this person's death and it doesn't make sense she just she said that comment about motive and opportunity i mean think about the motive it's just a few weeks i think it was three weeks before he died that the will is changed dr david fowler said that that coupled with the circumstances should be suspicions that are brought forward to law enforcement and i did what i could i contacted the private investigators that i know and they answered all of my questions and they felt that even with all of my suspicions that it probably wasn't enough to, after all of this time, bring to a police department who would be responsible for that jurisdiction that didn't even care enough in the first place to investigate at all. So it's been a frustrating experience where I wish I could have done something more at the time. But that will change. That's motive. That money that he was going to get and now that he understood for sure that he would get if Rick was dead, that could have been an irresistible impulse for somebody that literally lives as a scammer. That's the goal. And if there is unhappiness in the relationship, if there's that jealousy where he doesn't like that Cato's going out and dancing, where Rick doesn't like that Cato is spending all of his money, that's something else that the best friend had told me. If there's that hostility and then that irresistible impulse of getting money and then that opportunity of living in the same apartment and being alone together, and being in a society where the police and the powers that be might not care enough because of their demographic traits and because of bias and people being uncomfortable. I think if this happened in present day, it might have been a little bit different. But 2008 wasn't the best time to be gay, to be an old gay guy dating a young black gay guy. They're not going to care as much as if you were a heterosexual couple white without a inappropriate age difference for all we know he could have also set up an insurance policy like a life insurance policy he could have gotten even more money than we even know like how would we ever know 
if that was the case, but that would have been the perfect opportunity and the perfect motive as well. So I don't really know what happened in regards to this investigation. I think that you're right that people just didn't care enough. But I think that if the police department were more experienced, if the medical examiner's office were less sketchy, then I think that the case could have been solved. Like the real cause of death could have been determined and investigated. I'm not just saying this because I'm suspicious that he might have been responsible somehow for the death of a member of my family, for someone that I loved and cared about, Rick. I'm not just saying it because of that, but Cato is a fucking idiot. He is not smart. There is nothing about him that is smart. There is not a smart cell in that brain. If there was a competent investigation done in a timely manner, he wouldn't have gotten away with this if he had done something. He would be in jail. All of the evidence would be stacked against him. And he wouldn't be out there potentially preying on people now. I had kept up with his social media for a little while after all of this had happened. And he found another old gay guy in the religious community. I believe he had moved back to America and settled in the West Coast after a couple of years. He had met another lonely, older gay man in the religious community. That's probably how he meets them. That's how he met Rick. And they got married and ended up getting divorced. And I wonder if he made a hefty settlement in that scam as well. And I also wonder if gay marriage were legal in Delaware in 2008, if Rick might still be here today. I think that that man that we are aware of, I'm sure there have been plenty of others, but that specific man that you were talking about, I tried to message him and he never answered. I don't even think he viewed it. And I think that he's lucky to be alive. I tried to contact him, too. I contacted a lot of people when trying to look into this, and most people were very cooperative. But I understand why he might not want to talk about it, especially if he were epically scammed. Working with seniors when people are scammed, a lot of the time they're way too proud and ashamed to ever admit that someone made a fool out of them like that, especially if it's relating to a monetary loss. It's humiliating. I don't blame him for not wanting to talk to me, but I do think I could have gotten a fuller picture of what happened and what Cato's strategy is if he was willing to discuss it with me. But it's personal. I understand. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Crime Twins. If you enjoy our show and look forward to new episodes, please take the time to leave us a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen. You can follow us on social media, on TikTok and Twitter. We are at True Crime Twins. On Instagram, we are at True Crime Twins Podcast. You can also email with questions, comments, case suggestions at truecrimetwinspodcast at gmail.com.